listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Just some background on the passage, just kind of giving you the, 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 the context here. Paul was writing to the church he planted in Thessalonica, which is in northern Greece. Shortly after he planted the church, he was kicked out of the city for preaching the gospel. He was removed from the city by the authorities. He didn't get to teach these new converts everything that, they want, that he wanted to teach them, so they've written him several questions, and his letter, this first Thessalonians letter, is teaching them and answering their questions. And one of the questions toward the end of First Thessalonians is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, it's about what happens to believers who have died and how these new Christians are to think about that. He's going to remind them of what they already know, the gospel, what Jesus has done, but he's also going to expand on their base of knowledge and point them toward what Jesus will do. So let me read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and then we'll dive in and see what the Lord has for us. So it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So if you're taking notes, if you're kind of wanting to see the structure of how we're going to do this today, the resurrection, this is talking about the resurrection to come, encouragement in the resurrection to come. So the resurrection provides hope, that's verses 13 and 14. The resurrection promotes unity, verses 15 and 16. The resurrection brings comfort in verse 17. And then finally, we'll see that the resurrection is for our encouragement in verse 18. So verse 13 and 14, let's, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's pray through this, talk about it, and then we'll see what the Lord has. Let me pray for us real fast. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your reminder, this encouragement, that this life is not the only thing, this side of heaven, that there is a resurrection to come, that, there is, that our Christ leads us in the resurrection. And so I pray that today we would be encouraged by this message, that we would be encouraged by your grace in leading us into the life to come, that that would be a unifying, comforting, encouraging thing for us to meditate on, to think on, to be sharpened by. So I pray that you would send the Spirit to be mighty this morning, that you would teach us, open our hearts to hear your truth, and that you would make much of yourself and of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the resurrection provides hope verses 13 and 14. Let's take a look at those two verses. I want to read them again and kind of break it down. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who who have fallen asleep. So this idea, don't want you to be uninformed, the first part of verse 13 here. In Thessalonica, under Roman persecution, we see that, like in the first century, some Christians were martyred. They were killed for their faith. They were, so their faith in Jesus is what led to their death. And so now these new Christians, these new Christians that Paul has brought to faith and has planted this church, they're asking, what's going on? What happens when people die? 
What happens about these people? They, they were worried about whether the people that had died previously were going to miss the second coming of Christ, and they're trying to get their doctrine right because they're new to this whole thing. But put yourself there. You've just, if you're in Thessalonica, if you're in northern Greece, you've heard this message, you've come to faith in Christ, you've just heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus, you have a new church family gathering and beginning to live for Christ, and that guy who preached to you, who helped shepherd you, helped disciple you, has been kicked out of the city, and now some of your friends have been killed. So you start asking questions and wondering about life and death and how to live and what is, it really kind of throws you for a loop, right? So we see this idea of those who are asleep. This is how Paul refers to Christians who have died. And it's this metaphor, and it points to the resurrection. It points to something greater than just the finality of death, right? Those who are asleep will rise again. So just like when you get a good night's sleep and you lie down, and then your eyes open and it's a new day outside, that's something like what death will be like for Christians. We will go to sleep, and we will rise again in a new day. So that is why we... Don't grieve as others do who have no hope. The second half of verse 13 here. Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't grieve. He's saying that we should grieve differently than those who don't have the hope of the resurrection. Grieving is not a bad thing. It's a normal thing to grieve the death of a loved one. A few years ago, we had a family who lost one of their children. They were trying to remain strong, and they were really having a hard time. It was really just this devastating, unexpected thing that happened to them. And I told them, uh, the long counseling times, I told them that there are things in this life that should bring us to your knees. There are things that should make us grieve. Grief is not bad. It's a valid response to hard things this side of eternity. But we Christians, we grieve differently because we have hope. We weep when others die, just like Jesus did when his friend died. But we also know that there will be a day when Lazarus comes out of the tomb and we all walk in the newness of life together. Brothers and sisters, there is a coming resurrection. And that is why we have hope. Death may bring a separation from those that we love, but it's not the final word. And that is why we grieve differently than the world who does not share in our hope. And that's what we talk about in verse 14, the first half of verse 14 here. It says, since we believe Jesus died and rose again, Jesus Christ is our hope in the resurrection, is the basis for our hope in the resurrection. Our resurrection, if you are in Christ, your resurrection is as sure as Jesus. This is a great comfort to Paul's audience, who's wondering about their friends, who preceded them into glory. So in the second half of verse 14, we see that through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We see that Jesus will bring the souls who are currently in heaven. He'll bring those back with him when he returns. So those who preceded us in death will accompany him, and their their souls and their bodies will be reunited in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I've been fairly deep about resurrection and death, but what does this have to do with real life? What does this do? How does this affect how I pay my mortgage or parent my kids? What does it have to do with real life? With real life, as though this isn't real life. Good theology affects real life. Paul answers his, the, the Thessalonians' concerns by teaching them solid theology. He doesn't offer platitudes or coffee cup sayings. He offers theological instruction that informs their understanding of reality. And we can take some lessons from Paul here in how to teach theology. 
Some of you hear the word theology and your brain is like, not today. I haven't had enough coffee, just not, I'm not going to deal with it today. Don't want to handle it. It's too complex. It's not practical enough. So you just lay it aside and you start handling real life. But some of you hear the word theology and you're already pulling out your charts and highlighters and brewing coffee and you're like locked in. You're in your foxhole already, right? You see, theology is a great mental effort that's like sparring and boxing and, and you're sitting there, maybe if you're really amped up for theology, you're training, you're trying not to get hit too hard with your sparring match and maybe you're getting a good shot or two in on your opponent before the round is over. Maybe that's how you see theology, kind of like a contest. But Paul treats his theology a third way, a different way. He brings heavy theology to bear on real life. He has his books in his tweed jacket. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He's a, a seminary guy who could hang with the best of them in theology. But he uses it to counsel and to comfort and to talk in everyday language to people who need good answers, who need solid answers. For Paul, theology is not some academic exercise. This is not a seminary classroom discussion or thought exercise. This is pastoral ministry. And Paul brings theological clarity for the sake of real hope and comfort. And he does bring it to real life. He's answering hard questions about their dead relatives and their friends. This is no time for dodging difficult topics or using $10 words that, makes their eye, that make their eyes glaze over. So he brings hope through good theology. So if you're the person who taps out when people start talking theology, I would encourage you to talk with one of the elders. They know heavy theology. They can hang with the best of them, but they know how to teach it in a way that isn't over your head or removed from real life. They can point you to some great resources, some podcasts, books, articles, or people to help sharpen you, to enrich your spiritual life, and to help you understand the Bible and the world better. And you need to understand, if you, if you tap out with theology, if, you, if you're not a theology person, that's fine. But you need to understand that all of life is a theological enterprise. Everything in your life has some theology behind it, whether you realize it or not. So how you invest your money, how you parent your kids, how you work, how you order your home, literally everything you do has a theological component to it, whether you realize it or not. And maybe the confusion or frustrations that you have with life could be answered with a bit of theological sharpening. Just consider that. Now, if you're of the other persuasion and your best friends are your books, then I would challenge, first of all, you're in good company, that's me, but then I would also challenge you and myself to do a couple of things. The first thing is to prioritize relationship over knowledge. Make friends with people who don't care about theology and learn from them. They may know it better. They may do it better than you do. If, you, if you're a theology person, make friends with, don't, with people who don't care about theology and just listen to them talk about life and maybe see if you can learn something. And have conversations where you intentionally don't mention books or podcasts or theology. Just relate to that person. Have conversation. Have whole entire conversations where you don't say anything about the Bible, and it's okay. I'm a pastor, I'm telling you that, it's okay. As you read your theology, always have in the back of your mind that question of so what? Consider how these heavy concepts apply to real life. And if you can't see that connection easily, maybe you should just adjust course just a little bit and say, how does this make me really live? How does this heavy five or six or 700 page book, how is this going to affect the way that I parent my kids? How is this going to affect the way that I work, the way that I serve at church? How is this going to affect the way that I deal, deal with the issues in my home or my family? Ask that so what question. It's very important. 
So we see that there's a hope in the resurrection to come. And there's also unity, that we see the resurrection promotes unity in verses 15 and 16. I'll read those verses now. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So verse 15 says, We declare to you, <coughs> excuse me, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is something that Jesus revealed personally to Paul. This is an authoritative teaching that Paul is passing along to his audience. And most of the content here is also found, it's not just like Paul making this up, most of the content that we see in these couple of verses, we see in Matthew 24 and 25, and also in Mark 13 and in Luke 21. So this is Paul relaying some information from Jesus and, and, uh, and expanding on what Jesus has already taught in it during his earthly ministry. So then it says in verse 15, it says, We who are alive are left until the coming of the Lord. That's that, the, the, the kind of take-home message there is that all Christians should be prepared for Christ to return during our lifetime. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back, and I would kind of urge some caution and some general skepticism over anybody who can tell you that. Um, and you can, there's a long, rich history of people who've been very wrong about when Jesus is coming back. But we should be prepared for Jesus to come back anytime. We should live in such a way that his return would be imminent, because it is. And then in verse 15, continuing on, it says that we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So it's not exactly what clear what question the church in Thessalonica is asking. If this is, if this is the answer, we're not really sure what their question was. But either they thought that those who had previously died would be resurrected after the second coming of Christ, or they thought the dead would have no hope of salvation. Either way, whatever their question is, Paul is correcting them. He's providing them some good doctrine like we were talking about. And then in the first part of verse 16 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. This recalls this language of the day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. If you, if you study through, um, you can see it in Micah, you can see it in Zechariah, you can see it in a lot of different, Daniel, all these different places. There's this idea of the day of the Lord. It's when God comes back to judge the wicked and to save the righteous. And there's, we see here, there's three noises, three sounds that wake the dead in this case. There's a command, there's an announcement. It's reminiscent of Gabriel announcing with Mary, right, with the, with the birth of Christ. And then we see a trumpet blast. And all these things, are all, these are all kind of coinciding with the day of the Lord. They're announcing the return of the Lord. And we see throughout Scripture also that trumpets proclaim the Lord's presence. They're associated with battle. They're associated with the day of the Lord and with the resurrection. We see similar images in the Gospels in Daniel 7 and Revelation 19. This idea, this image of when Jesus is coming back on the clouds, this cloud rider from Daniel 7 coming back and returning to his people to judge the wicked and to, to rescue the, the saved. And the last part of verse 16 says, the dead in Christ will rise first. We see that those who have lived faithful lives until their death will be resurrected. And this is, there's no kind of qualifications on this. This is everybody who's died faithful in Christ. We see this means everybody from the patriarchs, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to other biblical figures like Job or Rahab or Ruth or King David or Isaiah or Esther or Jonah or Joseph and Mary or Jesus' disciples. Everybody who has died faithful in Christ will be resurrected. And it includes faithful believers who have died throughout history, back in the early church days, to the Middle Ages. We have Augustine back in the 4th in the century, in the 5th century, to the Reformation, the 15th, 1600s, to the 20th century, to those who died yesterday. 
to those who will die between now and when Jesus comes back. There are lots of things to say about this, but I want to highlight the fact that the resurrection unifies believers. All tribes, all tongues, and all nations, all time periods, all levels of society, all skin colors, all personality types, all intelligence levels, there is unity in this resurrection. And the unifying thing is faith in Christ. That is what unifies us in this resurrection. So brothers and sisters, our faith should unify us. If this is the way that it will be in heaven, if this is the way that it will be when Jesus returns, should it not be this way on earth? Like we pray, on earth as it is in heaven, right? There's no north side or south side of heaven like there is in Springfield. There's no wrong side of the tracks or right side of the tracks there. Diversity is this buzzword that we've tried to implement in companies and schools and churches. And and diversity is not a bad thing. Hear me on that. Diversity is not a bad thing at all. There can be great strength in a diverse people unified around a set of goals. But is that what unifies us? I think a lot of times people pursue diversity for the sake of diversity. Or to prove that they're not a racist. But in the church, we should pursue diversity for the glory of God. We should celebrate diversity because it highlights the thing that unifies us, the one thing that unifies us, that is Christ. We make much of Jesus when we lay aside our differences and we say that they pale in comparison to the joy that we have in seeing Christ in each other's lives. It is a beautiful thing to see somebody from a completely different country, completely different culture, completely different language call on the same name of Christ in faith. It's a beautiful thing. And to worship alongside You see, in the resurrection, we will see all believers of all time coming together with Christ as he returns. And this is not just a spiritual resurrection. It's not just some some idea, some figment of our imagination. It's not some, some spiritual thing. This is a physical resurrection as well. We will have glorified bodies, and we will live in a new creation, and we will all live together as God's people, and there will be joy and peace and harmony. What a beautiful thing to look forward to. You see, the resurrection brings unity to God's people. Unity, not division. On earth as it is in heaven. And this should not be surprising. It's a result of Christ's work and the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. See, Jesus is calling all tribes and tongues and nations to himself, and there's a unity there. There's a beauty there. It should not be surprising. So if we are unified in heaven, if we know that we one day will be unified with our Savior and with each other in heaven, how can we promote that unity here on earth? How can we join together with our brothers and sisters, even if we differ on a few doctrinal issues? I'm not talking about pairing up with heretics. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying laying down secondary and tertiary and quaternary issues and whatever the five thing is. I don't know what that one is. What, What if we lay aside those issues and just say, we love Jesus, let's do this together. The answer that we must keep is that we must keep the focus on Christ and his mission. We must keep that we, what we have in common in front of us, our faith in Christ and the coming resurrection. When we, when we have that focus set, when we have our identity and our future, then we will have a beautiful starting place for true unity that will last into glory. So now that we've seen Paul, now that Paul has settled what will happen to those who've died, What about those of us who are still alive when Jesus returns? 
We see that the resurrection has provided hope. The resurrection has promoted unity. And now we'll see that the resurrection brings comfort. In verse 17, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So we who are alive, who are left. So when this resurrection happens, when Jesus comes back, if you're still alive, you're going to see some pretty wild stuff. And then it will get even weirder. I can assure you that. It will be a day unlike any other. Then it says we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And these clouds are not earthly rain clouds. We're not talking about a rainstorm. He's not coming in a hurricane, nothing like that. But the clouds that are mentioned here are the clouds that surround the Lord's presence. That's the, the cloud that led Israel um, through the desert, the cloud that settled on the tabernacle, the cloud that enveloped Mount Sinai. There's lots of different clouds that, that show the Lord's presence. And it says that we're going to meet the Lord in the air. That's the same language as when the, is, is like um, if, you were, if you were in a city and there's this important dignitary who's coming to visit you and you, you go outside the city walls to meet him and, and to say, hey, welcome to the city. Come on in. Let me show you the way in. That's like the same language here. The same language is when there's an important dignitary and you go out to go meet him. We are going to meet the Lord in the air in that same way. And um, at, at risk of digressing too much, some of you may be thinking that this is the rapture you've heard that terminology, if you know what I'm talking about, um, we'll get into it. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'll explain this idea briefly. In the end times, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a time of tribulation. There's lots of wild things that we see in the book of Revelation. We see earthquakes, hail, storms, war, famine, disease, all kinds of things. There's lots of different things during this, this time of tribulation. And some people believe that the Lord will remove Christians from earth before or during that time of tribulation. They're not going to die. He, they will just kind of disappear and go to the Lord's presence in heaven. If you want a very so-so explanation of this in a fictional way, you can look at the Left Behind series and things like that. But that event, the, the taking of those believers, is called the rapture, and it's part of what's called dispensationalist theology. It's been quite popular with previous generations, but it's fallen out of fashion in the last several decades. And I, I personally... Do not believe in the rapture because I, I read Revelation with a different perspective, and I, I generally disagree with dispensationalism. Um, oh, by the way, if you have any questions about that, just email Greg. He would love to talk with you about it. Um, <laughs> that's a yeah. You can enjoy enjoy conversations with him. He'll buy you a cup of coffee. He'll talk with you about it as long as you want. He'll look at all the books that you give him. It'd be great. If you believe that this event here in First Thessalonians, though, if what we're talking about here today, the resurrection, if we're talking about this. If you think that this is the rapture, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this isn't it. This is the resurrection at the second coming of the Lord. And the key difference is here that the resurrection, for here, there's a resurrection of the dead and that Jesus doesn't stop in midair. He doesn't stop and then let the tribulation continue and some other things happen. It's that he's coming back to earth. In the rapture, believers uh, go to heaven and wait until Jesus comes back to earth. And what we're talking about here is when Jesus comes back, actually. So when Jesus returns... The dead will be raised, and if we are alive, we will join them with Christ as he comes to earth. And that's all very important. This is all good, important details. But the main point of this verse is the last little bit there. So we will always be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us that when we die, our bodies remains, but our soul goes to be with the Lord immediately. To be apart from the body is to be with the Lord. Then we await the day of our resurrection, which we've been talking about. 
And the resurrection brings comfort to believers because it means that we will always be with the Lord. Whether we're in life or in death, we are always with him. And we cannot and we will not be removed from his hand. Regardless of what we are, if we pledge our lives to Christ, if he saves us, we cannot be plucked from his hand. We can't be removed from his glory. We're part of the kingdom that's unshakable and that's eternal, that God is building. And when Jesus commissions us in Matthew 28 to go build his kingdom and to make disciples, he closes the Great Commission by saying what? I am with you always until the end of the age. So we will always be with him, and he will always be with us. Is that a comfort to you? Is that something that that brings you comfort? Is always being with the Lord a comfort to your soul? Does the idea that believers who have died are in the presence of the Lord, does that bring you comfort? Does the prospect of breathing your last and waking up in the presence of the Lord bring you peace? I, I hope it does. If the presence of the Lord doesn't bring you comfort, what else would? What else brings you comfort if not that? If God is not your promised land, if he is not your heaven, then what is? Here is the hope and the comfort for Christians. If we have the Lord, then nothing else can compare. He's the greatest comfort to our souls because he created us and he saved us and he's rescuing us and he's bringing us to himself. But the flip side of that perspective is that without the Lord, nothing will give us true comfort. We can search for it in any number of places. Substances, relationships, money, power, whatever it is. But nothing will really give us comfort. The great early church theologian Augustine famously said in his book, Confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I hope that you would find comfort in that. Hope that you would find comfort in the resurrection and always being with the Lord because that is a beautiful reality and a beautiful truth to cling to as believers. So we see that the resurrection provides hope and it also promotes unity and also brings comfort and now we can see the resurrection is for our encouragement. Verse 18. It says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is interesting because I think this is kind of a commentary on our current church culture, right? We often treat eschatology and the return of Christ like a riddle or a problem to be solved. But Paul doesn't say satisfy your curiosity with these words or sharpen your doctrine with these words or beat your theological opponent with these words. He doesn't say that. For Paul and his audience and for us, The idea of the resurrection and the second coming of Christ is an encouragement. Real doctrine for real life. Is it encouraging to you? Are you encouraged by Paul's words here? Does this passage give you hope? Hope beyond the sun, beyond this life. Hope that goes into eternity. Hope that this light and momentary affliction is bringing about an eternal weight of glory. Hope that informs how we live today. Hope that's evident in the way that we spend our time and our money. Hope in the way that we invest in our friendships. Hope that inspires us to live differently than those who have no such hope. 
Are we encouraging others, each other, toward that hope? And then does this passage bring unity among us? Do we spend our time arguing about the fine points of Jesus' second coming, or do we rejoice with each other that we received an invitation to the party? Are we celebrating our common ground, or are we highlighting our differences and pointing out each other's weaknesses? Are we encouraging each other toward the unity that we have in the resurrection? And then does this passage comfort you? Comfort that death is not the final word. Comfort that surpasses understanding even in times of grief. Comfort that the Lord is sovereign over life and death and everything under the sun. Comfort that the words of Scripture are true, they're trustworthy, and they're clear. That's some mystery. And comfort that our Jesus is coming back. See, brothers and sisters, we have hope in the resurrection because Jesus leads us in the resurrection. Jesus is why the resurrection gives us hope. Without Jesus, there is still a resurrection, but there is only judgment on the other end of it. It is only his blood that atones for sin. It is only by his grace that we're allowed into heaven. So we have hope. But Jesus is why the resurrection unites us. We have precious little in common in this room. I didn't know any of you in this room, except for maybe a couple of people when I moved here 10, 11 years ago. And yet, we have a lot in common in Christ. I didn't, I didn't share the first 25, 30 years of my life with you. And yet now, we have a common bond in Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. That's the most important thing. And our faith in Christ cuts across all cultures, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic statuses, all languages, all time. And in glory, we will be saints, united under the banner of Christ's name. And that's why the the resurrection in Christ unites us together. But without Jesus. And and that's, that's why the resurrection is an encouragement to us. That's why it's a beautiful promise that should inform how we live. But... If you think about the flip side of it, without Jesus, the resurrection to come means something entirely different. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that God created everything, but man rebelled against him, which is sin, and carries with it the penalty of death. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and to die a horrific death, and then to come back to life and ascend to heaven. And those who have faith in Christ and who follow him faithfully have their sins paid for by Jesus, and we will join him in his resurrection. But without the atoning blood of Christ, you will answer to God for your own sins. And the God of heaven will judge you, and you will be found wanting, because only Christ's blood will satisfy him. So instead of being resurrected to the newness of life, you'll be resurrected to eternal punishment in hell. In just a few minutes... We're going to take communion like we do each week. We, we talk about, we remember his death, and we reflect on the sin that made his death necessary, that he paid for. We remember his resurrection that gives us hope. But we also look forward to our own resurrection when we will dine with him in heaven. Only it won't be these small portions in these little cups and things like that. It'll be a wedding feast as he is united with his bride, the church. I may not see you again until that day. Some of you will precede me in death. 
I will probably precede some of you as well. But until then, let's hold fast to the encouragement that we have in our risen Christ and make him known. This is a bittersweet goodbye. I have loved being one of your pastors, and you've been a joy to lead. This is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I'm so sad to say goodbye. Yet I'm confident that you have prepared me well for the work that the Lord has for me. And I'm confident that you are in the best of hands. I wouldn't leave you otherwise. So until we meet again, let's be about the Lord's work. Let's be united with Christ and his disciples as disciples of Jesus. Let's live together in unity, in life together. And let's make disciples for his glory.